You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. On this Thanksgiving weekend, uh, to be thankful, and uh, um, as the people of God, of course, uh, we have so much to be thankful for. Thankful uh, for this church family. Thank you for your prayers uh, over the last uh, uh, couple of weeks for our family as we were sick. Thank you so much for just the, the notes of encouragement, the text, the, the dropping off food and all that kind of stuff. We're really thankful for you guys and also thankful uh, that my old youth kid, uh, Kyle, could be here last weekend and uh, to bring the word. I know my heart was greatly encouraged uh, by uh, what he had to, to, to challenge us with from God's Word, from John 13, and um, uh, just a great reminder of the importance of love in these days. And so uh, it was a great, great in, uh, time to uh, be encouraged by that. And uh, just a, an update, they had their first uh, kickoff this last week. Uh, they were able to rent a place uh, that like, seats like 1,100 people, so they were able to social distance, no problem. Um, and uh, there were 40 people showed up for the first meeting uh, for the church plant, so really exciting. Um, Pastor Chris from Red Deer and Pastor Meldon from Kelowna were able to be there uh, just to support Kyle in that first launch. So lots to praise God for this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible uh, this morning, you're going to need one. Just slip up your hand. That should be happy to give you a copy of God's Word. We're going to get into Romans chapter 9. Uh, this morning, we looked at just the first five verses a couple of weeks ago. And um, as I mentioned, some of the things that we're going to be covering, chapters 9 through 11, are, uh, have been controversial over the centuries. Um, I, I want you to note as we look at these, these texts from chapters 9 through 11 that, that, that actually this is not a 500-year-old debate. This is actually a 2,000-year-old debate ever since uh, these things were penned. All right, so uh, as, we, as we go through these verses, some of, the, some of the content for some of us, I know this was my story, you're going you're gonna to look at this and you're like, well, I've never seen this before. How come I've never seen this before? And, 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 and it's going to maybe challenge you in ways that you have not been challenged before. And uh, I want to just encourage you that uh, every word in the Word of God is there for our uh, growing in our understanding of, what, uh, of who God is and what He has for us. And so we want to not take out our Sharpies as being uh, highlighters, okay? We're not going to get rid of these verses, but we are going to study them. And I want us to, to think about again, okay, why, why are these things being written? Now, what I think is important to note as we look at chapters 9 through 11, the things that are being written are not meant to start a debate, they're actually written so that we might understand something. And, and the big question that everyone had was, if Jesus was the Messiah, why are so few of the Israelites being saved? Has God turned his back on the people of Israel? This was the question that everyone was dealing with. Boyce uh, puts it well. He says this, the promises of God were to Israel. And yet Israel as a whole was unresponsive. 
Did this mean, now this is what everyone was asking, did this mean that God's promises to Israel had failed? That is, that God himself had failed. That God was impotent in the face of unbelief. Or did it mean that the promises of God could not be trusted? That in the matter of salvation, God was simply free to change his mind. You can understand, this is a lot at stake. If God can just change his mind, about salvation and, 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 and his promises, then what the end of chapter 8 has said about nothing being able to separate us from the love of God is, is up for debate then at that point. And so what Paul is going to give us from chapters 9 through 11 are an answer as to whether or not God has changed, whether or not his promises have failed. In answering the questions about Israel's unbelief, Paul brings in a doctrine called election. Anyone hear of that word before, election? Not like what we just did a couple weeks ago, all right? But, but election in regards to theology, that, that God chooses certain people to be saved. I remember the first time I heard about this doctrine, I automatically dismissed it, all right? Now, I wasn't 11 years old, okay? I, I got, came to faith in 10, and it wasn't like when I was 11. It wasn't like when I was 20. Like, I was around 30 years old at this point. I'd never heard of this doctrine for whatever reason. It never crossed my mind. I had read, read through my Bible many times, and this whole concept of election, I just automatically dismissed it. If you were to press me on it, I would say, well, I just don't believe that. That would be my great explanation as to why I didn't believe it. I just don't believe it. I don't think it matches up with the rest of Scripture. If you were to say, okay, well, what about Romans 9, 6 through 13? I'd be like, I don't know what to tell you. That, that would have been my response. And so I, I understand that when you come to this text, this is I, when I came to this text, there, there could be some questions that you have in mind. But when it comes to the doctrine of election, I first want us to say, hey, wait a minute. It's not just in these verses here. Uh, Matt already met, read from Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. As you read, you would have noted in Ephesians 1 to 4 that it says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 5 says he predestined us for adoption to himself. Jesus, when he was on this earth, he spoke, to, spoke about the elect in Matthew 24. In John chapter 6, verse 44, he says that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. 1 Peter 2 refers to believers as a chosen race. Colossians 3 refers to believers as chosen ones. This idea of being chosen, of being elect, is all through the New Testament. So we all have a doctrine of election here is the question is whether or not our doctrine of election is accurate or not. And so this morning, as we, we get into the text, I want us to, to take it slowly. You're going to have questions by the time we're done this week, and I want you to note that there's a whole bunch of questions asked right after 9 through 13. You get to verse 14, they're like, well, what about this? Right? So if you're having a bunch of questions, you're on the right track. Okay? Does that make sense? Right? If you're like, no questions, maybe you don't quite fully understand it yet. Okay? So, so 
you, we are, we're gonna work through this patiently together because ultimately, now here's the goal. Ultimately, if I have a proper understanding of chapters nine through 11, what's the result? The end of chapter 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. Praise is the result. If we properly understand chapters 9 through 11, the end result will be praise. Maybe some of you are here this morning is like, I'm already there. I, already ha- I, I, I actually grew up in this kind of tradition. I've known about elections since I was like three years old. Maybe for you, you'd be like Arthur Pink, who said this, election is the root of all blessings the spring of every mercy that the soul receives. If election be taken away, everything is taken away. Maybe you're already on that end of the spectrum. But I want to understand, I want us to to acknowledge this morning that we're probably all over the place when it comes to this, but we're going to study it together. And so what? We need the Spirit of God's help. Amen? All right, so let's pray, and then we're going to get into it. Lord God, we do acknowledge our weakness, our frailty this morning. We acknowledge that um, the things of God are too great for our small minds. But God, we're so thankful that, Lord, you've given us your spirit this morning to lead us, to guide us, to help us to grow in our understanding. Lord, Jesus, before you left this earth, you you said that you would send your spirit to help us, to counsel us, to teach us. And God, we're so thankful that we've received that spirit. Everyone who is your child this morning has that spirit. And so, God, we trust you this morning that you will lead us, that you will guide us, that you'll help us to grow in our understanding. God, thank you so much that you are patient with us and that... um, Although for you these things are not difficult to understand, you understand that for us they are. And so, God, we we thank you that you're going to lead us this morning, that you will help us. And then, God, as as we end our time this morning, that, Lord, we would would already get to Romans chapter 11, that we would would praise you as a result of the things that you're teaching us even this morning. Lord, for you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so Romans chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 13 this morning. Let's read it, and then we're going to break it down together. Verse 6 says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's promise, sorry, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, 
If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, just to set the stage, we, we, as we looked at verses, nine, sorry, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, we've seen Paul's heart for his people Israel. He, he loves them greatly. He desires that they all be saved. He even says that if he be damned so that they might be saved, he would do it. He has a great love and concern for his own people. This is what he has said to set the stage. And now he is trying to help them understand how is it that so many could have missed it. So many could have missed that Jesus was the Messiah. What's, the, what, what's at stake here? And so as we look at this text, we're going to see Paul explaining three truths regarding the promise of God. Three truths regarding the promise of God. First, the promise of God transcends human expectation. It transcends human expectation. We see this in verses 6 through 8. The first thing that he says to this claim that, 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 that God must have changed, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is the statement in chapters 9 through 11 are the explanation of why this is not true. The word of God has not failed. Of course, we know that a word is only as good as the one saying it. And if God has said it, we know that we can trust it. What he's going to show us that God's word has never failed. And in fact, what is happening right now with the people of Israel is, the, is following the same pattern as has been throughout the history of Israel. He begins by saying this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all who say that they're Israel are truly Israel. Now, they had a little bit of selective memory in Israel, correct? <laughs> right? I mean, all they had to read is like Joshua through Malachi to see over and over again that, that it didn't always go well just because you were simply an Israelite. That there was so much more going on that, that just because you call yourself an Israelite didn't mean that you were actually an Israelite. He's already went through this in Romans chapter 2. Do you guys remember that? Back in Romans chapter 2, just, just because you were born a Jew, just because you had the physical sign of circumcision didn't mean that you were truly an Israelite. He says it near the end of the chapter, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. There needs to be an inward change. Just being simply born as a, as a part of a family, a family lineage, did not mean that you were okay with God. There had to be an inward heart change. And this is a good reminder for you and I today. Not everybody who calls themselves a Christian is truly a Christian. Now, our society is moving away from this, but it used to be if you'd get the little government surveys, you know, are you Buddhist, Muslim, Christian? And you're like, yeah, I think we're Christian. We used to go to church. I think our family were Catholic. I guess we're Christian, right? And you check off the little Christian box. 
But that did not make you a Christian, just simply going to church. And if you're here this morning and you've grown up in the church, it's a good reminder that to call yourself a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you are a Christian. To be a Christian means that you are following Christ, that you have repented of your sin, that you are truly following him. Lip service, lineage does not make us a Christian. And in this case, make us part of God's covenant promise to Abraham. He points out that just because you're Abraham's kid doesn't mean you have Abraham's blessings. Verse 7, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, if you were to go back to Genesis, you'll see that Isaac wasn't their only kid. In fact, first they had this child by the name of Ishmael. Ishmael, and we'll talk more about him in just a moment. But what we don't often talk about is that after Ishmael and Isaac, there were six more sons that were born to Abraham afterwards. How many received the promise? How many received the covenant promise? Only Isaac. And so he's, he's starting, to, starting to poke holes in their, their theology of saying, well, we're Abraham's kid. Well, so was Ishmael. So were a bunch of other kids that you probably can't remember their names are, and neither can I at this moment, right? Okay? But those six children, they received a lot of material blessing, being Abraham's kids, but they did not receive the covenant promise. It was only through Isaac, as God said it would be. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Child of the flesh, Ishmael. It would not be through Abraham's firstborn, as would have been tradition at that time. It was not going to be through his first child, but it was going to be through the child that God said the promises would come to. God chose that Isaac would be the child who would be counted as offspring. Now, it's important to note that children of God are always referred to as those who are saved, those who are truly a part of God's family. If you just flip back even just to the last chapter, chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, It says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So to be a child of God was to be his people, to be saved by him. And what he's saying here is that the children of God were not just because you were born to Abraham, children of the flesh, but according to a promise. This is how It came about. Moo puts it this way. What counts is grace, not race. What counts is grace, not race. Even in Jesus' day, there were people claiming Abraham as their father who ultimately could only say that according to the flesh. Jesus, speaking to the Jews of his day, acknowledged that they were the offspring of Abraham, but that they did not mean 
that they would have the spiritual promises to Abraham. John chapter 8, 39 and 40. I encourage you again, just write these verses down as, you're, as we're going through this and looking at it and study it for yourself later. But, but, but they're saying, hey, Abraham's our father. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're not following in the line of Abraham. You can say that you're his kids, and by descent you could say that legitimately, but you're only children of the flesh. Why? Because you're not doing what your, what your father Abraham did. He says, drop down to verse 47 of chapter 8. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so just to claim that Abraham was your father was not enough. There needed to be a heart change. There needed to be a life change. You needed to do the things that God did. One last thought on verse 8. Yarbrough says this. This phrase, counted as offspring, uses the same word used earlier to describe Abraham's faith as counted to him as righteousness. No one has, who, uh, sorry, no one has ever deserved God's acceptance. It has always been a matter of God's imputing pardon to sinners who in themselves possess no justification for God's favor. Salvation has always been by God's promise rather than human merit. So, so why, why Isaac, not Ishmael or the other sons? Why? Because God said so. Because God chose Isaac according to the promise. Now, as we think about this, it's really important that, again, we keep the whole teaching of Romans in mind. Romans chapter 3 says what? That we're all basically good people, right? Is that what Romans 3 told us? That we're all basically good people and, and God just helps us out a little bit. It doesn't, no, it does not say that. Romans chapter 3, let me remind you, verses 10 through 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the state of humanity is this, that every single person left to themselves would reject God and has rejected God. Every single person. Romans 3.20 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is the state of humanity. One stream going one direction to damnation. That's who humanity is. But we're reading here that God chooses some. He chose Isaac and said, you will be a part of my covenant promise. Just as we remember, if you'll recall, Abraham, was he kind of, was he following God, seeking after God when God chose him? No, he was an idolater, living with an adulterous family. And God said, I choose you, Abraham, to make a nation out of you, and gives him his covenant promises. And now he says it's going to be through Isaac. All right. So, so far, so good? Uh, I got some questions. I, I want us to understand, first of all, 
our own sinful nature is pushing back against us because we think, well, well, we're basically good people. The Scripture tells us we're not. Okay? And then secondly, I want us to understand that our culture is also very much against this. So we got lots of forces against this teaching. But we often say, okay, but what does God's Word say? Right? So we live in a society, let's just stop and think about it. We live in a society that thinks that we deserve a whole lot. We live in a society where, I don't know, and I don't want to get political, but I just find it crazy that we live in a society that, hey, you're making a lot of money. You, you should give it to me. Like, that's, that's our world now. It's not, it's not just like, hey, it would be really nice if they shared some of their wealth with us. It's like they demand it, right? So we'll, dis, we'll determine what is a healthy amount for you to live on, and now all the rest should come to me. I don't have to work for it. I shouldn't have to do anything for it. You should just give it to me because I deserve it. We live in a world where self is on the throne, and society should give me what I deserve. That's our world that we live in today. And it's seeped into the church. And there's a lot of people think that they should be able to demand things of God. And that includes salvation. God should save people. Well, he is saving people, but how is that determined? And what we're finding here is that God is the one who says who will be saved. Not you or I. He is the one who determines this. Moo puts it like this. Paul implies belonging to the new covenant people of God is based on God's free choice and not a birthright. Thus, it should be no surprise and certainly no threat to the integrity of God's word if many Jews have failed to trust Christ and be saved. What, he, what he's setting up here is saying, look, it's never been this way that everybody would be saved. That, that just because you're a Jew that you would automatically be in. It's always been by God's choice. Three truths regarding the promise of God. The promise of God, secondly, transcends human exertion. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. It was based upon the promise. Now, let's just take a step back and think about this whole Abraham situation. God chooses Abraham, says, go to the land that I will show you. He walks in obedience. He goes to that land. He's, he's given these promises, these covenantal promises in Genesis 12 that will be for him and his, his lineage. And no baby, right? No baby for a long time. I know, I know what we'll do. Here's my servant, Hagar. Have a child through her. That's how this will happen. We will achieve God's promises and, and God's ways through our human means, through our human exertion. And how did that go? Well, I guess in some ways, well, there was a baby born. 
But that's not the solution. And God makes it clear, no, not through Ishmael. I told you, you will have a son. And so there's these angels, one of them being a pre-incarnate Christ, who comes and says, hey, uh, you're going to have a baby. This is what we find in Genesis 18, verses 10 and 14. You're going to have a baby. And they're a little doubting of that. Why? At this time, Abraham's 99, Sarah is 89, and he says next year, by the time we come back, you will have a child. And it says in verse 14 of Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And so the child comes through the promise. The child comes through miraculous means. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. God alone gets the glory. He will achieve it. He will bring about. And we're told, if you remember, as we were going through Romans chapter, nine, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 4, that Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed that God could do it. Even though he was almost 100 years old and Sarah was almost 90, he believed that it could happen, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Yarbo says this, Paul's point is that redemption is by God's promise or what we would call good news, not by the sort of human scheming that produced Ishmael. Again, what, what a reminder for us. How, how, many, how many people in this world today trying to scheme their way into salvation somehow, right? Um, I know we'll come up with a new religion, and, and here's the rules, and this is how you're made right with God, and you just follow all the rules, and you'll be made right with God. That's not how it works. Works-based does not make us right with God. Coming up with our own schemes does not make us right with God. It comes only through the promises of God. So, Paul is saying, if you have not yet recognized that Jesus is your Messiah, then it may be that you are not the chosen people or chosen person. They may have done good works. They may have been born a Jew that did not guarantee them salvation. Third thing, three truths regarding the promise of God. The promise of God transcends human election. It's unlikely that many would have argued with God choosing Isaac over Ishmael, right? You could just, you could just hear, oh, of course not. Of course he was not going to choose Ishmael. That was through the maidservant Hagar. Yes, it was through favorite Father Abraham, but, but it wasn't his wife. And, and so, yeah, we get it. And so he's like, well, can, can I give you another example as to the fact that it was through God's choice alone? So now he illustrates with Isaac and Rebekah. Verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. All right, so let's just break this down. You say, okay, the whole Isaac illustration, two moms, one a maidservant, one the wife, how about this one? Isaac and Rebekah. One man, one woman, one moment of conception. Now we have two babies. One man, one woman, two babies. Just, just a reminder, too, that, that the birth of these children did not come easily once again. Now just as... Uh, Sarah had to wait till 90s year old, 90, year olds, 90s, 90 years old before she had a child. We are told in Genesis 25, 21, that Rebekah had also been barren. And so Isaac prayed, and in response to his prayer, the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah conceived. Now, as we read along, we find out that there's not just one child, there's two. There's nothing in this case that sets the two children apart from one another, right? Again, they may have argued against the first example, but there's just two child, children came about from one act of love, and now they should, there's nothing distinguishing the, from one from another, but we're told this, God once again chooses one child over the other. What does he base his decision on? Perhaps God looks ahead and, and sees the works of one versus the other. Is that the case? Is it based on works? It says, though they were not yet born, Paul's making this very clear. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Is it based on works? Not based on works. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, the, the, the effectiveness is not based on works, it's based on his calling, it's based on his election. He explains that, that God's purpose of election might continue. He explains that the purpose of election is based, uh, sorry, established by him who calls and not based on works. Stop puts it like this. What God's purpose in election means is clear beyond doubt. It is that God's choice of Isaac, not Ishmael, and of Jacob, not Esau, does not originate in them or in any works they have done, but in the mind and will of him who calls. Who gets to decide? God gets to decide. He who calls. Salvation comes from him and him alone. It was God's choice. It was God's will that Jacob would be the one through whom the covenantal promises would go. It was his will alone that impacted the decision and not works or any other human factors. It was not because he was going to be the older. In fact, we're told in the next verse that it was the, he, the older would serve the younger. When we think of the word election, 
Many of you, again, will, will think about the election a little while ago, right? How does that election work? Well, we get a vote, right? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work as well, but we all got a vote, okay? And the majority votes wins, right? That, that's how elections work. But I want us to know when it comes to God's election, he gets the vote. He's not asking you and I our opinion on who should be saved and who should not be saved. He is the one who gets the vote. His purpose of election is fulfilled. We see it, right? As we look back on history, called Isaac, what happened? He became that child. The promises went through him. He called on Jacob, what happened? The promises went through Jacob. His calling is sure. His word is sure. Moose says it like this, Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. By these choices, God has seen to it that his plan to bring into existence a people who would be his peculiar possession would remain. If God's plan depended on the vagaries of sinful human beings for its continuance, then indeed God's word would have fallen to the ground long ago. In other words, if it's left up to you and I, it's getting messed up. But God's purpose in history is fulfilled because he himself elects people to be a part of that purpose. And so we read in verse 12, she was told the younger will serve the younger. Sorry, the older will serve the younger. God told Rebekah of his calling of Jacob before he was born. It was, not, it was the basis of God's choice and not according, again, to this, the standard tradition of the day. And then this jarring statement. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. I told someone that that's where we were ending this week, and they're like, really? That doesn't seem like a great place to stop. It's a jarring statement. It comes again, and what I want us to know, as Paul is going through these chapters, he's going back to the Old Testament scriptures over and over and over again. He's like, I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the Bible. It's in the Word of God. Here he's quoting from Malachi, right at the beginning of Malachi. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Is this an emotional thing? Is, is that what's going on here? You know, he, he looked at Jacob and he's like, oh, I love you, Jacob. And he's like, get away, Esau. I hate you. Is that what's going on here? It's not an emotional thing. When you think about the word I love, how many different ways you use it in the week, right? Hopefully, you say to your spouse, I love you. But you also may say in the next breath, I love broccoli. I doubt that that's ever been said, but there might be someone who says that, okay? Do you mean the same thing? I love my wife, I love broccoli. Is that the same? Well, it's obviously, it's not the same. So, so what is going on here? What, what is exactly that, that Paul is trying to get across here? Well, I believe Stott is right when he says that this is a Hebrew idiom for preference. It's for preference. It is I choose this, I do not choose this. It's like if you were at a barbecue and you're like, 
I love hamburgers and I hate hot dogs. What are you saying? Like if you're at a barbecue, you're going to choose the hamburger, not the hot dog. That's probably a crass way to help you understand this. Maybe, maybe a better way is to look at what Jesus had to say. In Luke 14, 26, he said this, If anyone comes to me, in other words, if anyone wants to be my disciple, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. As you look at all the Scripture, do you, do you really think that God's calling you to hate your spouse, to hate your children? Now, there's cults out there who will take this verse, and that's where they'll run with it, right? They're like, yeah, join our cult, and you need to separate yourself from your entire family and hate them and, and join us. What, what was Jesus saying? He was saying, look, when it comes to relationships, I need to have your number one love and affection. I get your number one and everyone else then gets the rest, right? You get that wrong, you get everything wrong. If you love your spouse more than you love Jesus, you don't love your spouse well ever. It's going to not turn out well for you. Jesus must have your preference. That's what he's saying here. And so he's, he's just highlighting what we've been understanding all along. Jacob, I chose Esau, I did not choose. As a result, Jacob became a part of God, God's covenant people. That's what happened. And Esau was left to his own devices. Now, it's really important for us to understand that Esau was 100% culpable for everything that he did in his life. Right? When he gave up his birthright, did he do that willingly? Yes, he did it willingly. He was really hungry. Right? It wasn't like he was like, oh, I really want to follow Yahweh, but he won't let me. That's never happening. We do understand that, right? So he's 100% culpable for what he did. So how do we sum up verses 6 through 13? I think Schreiner sums it up very well. God's word does not fail because it is not based on human actions and choices. God's word does not fail because it is not based on human actions and choices. It is based on his word and his choice and his will. And when God is in charge, it always works out according to his will. So, what are we to do with today's text? You may have a whole bunch of questions going around in your mind right now. That's great. If you do, that means you are starting to grasp what verses 6 through 13 are saying. Have you got lots of, you're like, uh, well, what about this and what about that? Just look ahead at the next verses, right? There's a lot of questions coming. And Paul, 
who has been proclaiming the same message over and over again, he anticipates all of your questions. And he is not afraid of the questions. And he has answers. And so I want you just to encourage you with that. If you've got a bunch of questions right now, that's okay. That's good. Just be patient. Read ahead. Start studying it for yourself and get ready for next week and the answers that will come there. But, but let's start with this. God's word does not fail because it is not based on human actions and choices. God is the one who chooses who the children of God will be, and when he calls them, they become his children. There is no example in the, in the, in the scriptures where God has called someone and they did not become his child. All through, all through the scriptures, over and over again, you see examples of this. If you are a child of God today, I want you, this is what I hope you will take away this morning. If you are a child of God today, that means what? God chose you. That, that should blow you away. It was not because of your ethnicity. It's not because of religious reasons. It's not because of your works. He simply looked through time, as we see in Ephesians 1, and decided that he would choose you. This is where I want you to think and meditate during this week. Not, not on the, well, what, what about Esau? Was that fair to Esau? And, and, and I don't know, like, what about Ishmael? Was that fair to him? And, like, let's just focus on if the doctrine of election is true, because we're going to get to these answers on those other questions later. If this is true, then my reaction should be praise. I, I remember uh, some good friends were just talking through some of these things, and, and for them, the first time that they heard this, they're like, what? You guys don't actually believe that, do you? Like, you know, like, do you, you're not one of those, are you? Like, well, you know, it's, that's what scriptures seem to say. And so, so they started wrestling through it, and, and uh, I remember Heather coming to me, and this friend of hers had come back and just said, and she, she was just, she's like, I think I'm starting to get it. And she was just, she had tears in her eyes because she's like, she's like, I, what I don't understand, if all this is true, is why did God choose me? I love what Spurgeon has to say here. He says, I believe the doctrine of election, because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. If we understand what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 3, that all of us deserve damnation, that all of us have sinned and rebelled against him, then we should be in awe of the fact that he would ever have chosen any of us to be saved.
Now, I want to acknowledge that for you and I, this doctrine of election, it could be hard for our minds to get wrapped around. How does this all work? How, how does it all work? Because I, I look at other scriptures, and it, it seems like there, there's a clear choice to be made. When the gospel goes forth and, and, and God says repent and, 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 and that, that there's a choice to be made, it, it, what, how does it all fit together? Here's one thing I know for sure. It's not difficult for God to understand how it all fits together. And what we need to be careful of is that we don't pick and choose what we believe about our God. He is 100% just, as we're going to get into next verse. He is 100% loving. He is 100% compassionate. He has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. And how he put this all together, only he fully understands. But as we grow in our understanding of these things, I pray as we study these texts over these weeks to come, I pray that we would be in awe of the fact that he's chosen us, and then secondly, that we would be quick to worship him. Because as I said before, that's the end of all of this. At the end of chapter 11, we see praise. Stott says this, election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time and eternity. It is the essence of worship to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. If we were responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part, we would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping him, humbling themselves before him in grateful adoration, ascribing salvation to him and to the Lamb, and acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive all praise honor, and glory. To him be the glory. Let me pray. Lord God, we're so thankful for this time together this morning. God, we acknowledge this morning that some of these things are hard for us to understand. But we also acknowledge that we are but jars of clay. That we are the creation and you are the creator. That you are great, and that we are not. And so God, we would pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding. That um, God, we would see that you alone are responsible for our salvation. And that that would be something that we would praise you for. Lord, left to ourselves, we would continue to walk in rebellion. We would continue to shake our fists at you. But Lord, we are so thankful that in your grace, you chose not only us, but Lord, you chose to send your son to die on a cross that we might be saved. That in your sending of your son, that Lord, you removed our guilt Lord, you removed our sin, you placed it upon Christ, and he paid the price for our sin. Lord, truly your ways are higher than our ways. 
And this morning, we praise you for that. May you receive all the glory and honor in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.